LastPass, breached. Air gapping, breached. And sanitizing Chrome. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I'm Doug Ameth. With me, as always, is Paul Ducklin. Paul, how do you do today, sir? I'm very cheery, thank you, Doug. Well. I've got a big smile on my face. Great. Just because. I've got something that uh, will put an extra big smile on your face. We're going to talk about this week in tech history. On August 29th, 1990, the Computer Misuse Act went into effect in your home, the UK. The act was meant to punish three types of offenses. Unauthorized access to computer material, unauthorized access meant to facilitate further offenses, and unauthorized modification of computer material. And the act was spurred in part by two men accessing British Telecom's voicemail system, including the personal mailbox of Prince Philip. Paul, where were you when the Computer Misuse Act was enacted? Well, I wasn't actually living in the UK at that time, Doug, but all over the world people were interested in what was going to happen in the UK, precisely because of that Prestel hacking court case. The two perpetrators, actually I don't think I can call them that because their conviction was overturned, uh, Robert Schifrin and Stephen Gold, he actually died a few years ago. Silentmodems.com is a suitable for work memento to him. They were tried for, I think, forging and uttering, you know, which is where you you create something fake and then convince someone it's true, which was felt to be a bit of a legal stretch. And although they were convicted and fined, they went to appeal and the court said, no, this is nonsense. The law doesn't apply. And it was pretty obvious that although sometimes it's better to try and make old laws apply to new situations rather than just churning out new legislation all the time, in this case, where computer intrusions were concerned, perhaps taking analogues from the old physical days of things like forging and breaking and entering and theft just weren't going to apply. So that's exactly what happened with the Computer Misuse Act. It was meant to usher in rather different legislation than simply trying to say, well, taking data is kind of like stealing and breaking into a computer is kind of like trespass. Those things didn't really add up. And so the Computer Misuse Act was famously meant to cross the bridge into the digital era, if you like, and begin to punish cybercrime in Britain. And uh, the world's toughest segue here to our first story, we go from the Computer Misuse Act to talking about static analysis of a dynamic language like JavaScript. That's uh, what you might call an anti-segue, Doug. (laughs) Let's segue by saying there is no segue here. I tried to pride myself on my segues, and I just had nothing today. There's no way to do it. That was pretty good. Yes, this is a a nice little story that I wrote up on Naked Security about a paper that was presented recently at the 2022 Usenix conference, and it's entitled Mining Node.js Vulnerabilities via Object Dependence Graph and Query. And the idea is to try to reintroduce and to reinvigorate what's called static analysis, which is where you just look at the code and try to intuit whether it has bugs in it. It's a great technique, but as you can imagine, somewhat limited. There's nothing quite like testing something by using it, which is why, for example, in the UK, where there's an annual safety test for your car, a lot of its inspection 
but when it comes to the brakes, there's actually a machine that spins up the wheels and checks that they really do slow things down properly. So static analysis has sort of fallen out of favour, if you like, because according to some schools of thought, it's a bit like trying to use, say, a simple spelling checker on a document to judge whether it is actually correct. So, for example, you put a, a scientific paper into a spelling checker, and if it, none of the words are misspelled, then the conclusions must be true. Clearly, that's not going to work. So these chaps had the idea of trying to update and modernise static analysis for JavaScript, which is quite tricky because dynamic languages like JavaScript, you know, a variable could be an integer at one moment and a string the next, and you can add integers and strings and it just automatically works things out for you. So a lot of the bugs that you can identify easily with classic static analysis, they kind of don't apply with dynamic languages because they're meant to allow you to chop and change things at runtime. So what you see in the code is not necessarily what you get at runtime. But they proved their sort of what you might say life in the old dog yet because they were able to take 300,000 packages from the NPM repository. And I think using their automated tools fairly briskly, they found about 180 bugs of which somewhere around 30 actually ended up getting CVEs. And I thought this was interesting because you can imagine in a world of supply chain attacks where we're taking massive amounts of code from things like NPM, PyPy, RubyGems, PHP Packagists, it's hard to subject every possible package to full dynamic analysis, compile it, run it and test it before you even begin to decide, do I trust this package? Do I think that this development team is up to scratch? And so it's nice to have some more aggressive tools that allow you to find bugs proactively in the giant, convoluted, straggly web of complication that is contemporary supply chain source code dependencies. Well, that's great. Great work, everybody. I'm very proud of these researchers, and this is a, a good addition to the computing community. And speaking of an addition to the computing community, it seems that uh, AirGap has been breached so badly that you might as well not even use it. Am I right, Paul? Sounds like you've read the PR stuff, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> the end Our is nigh. Regular naked security readers and podcast listeners will know what's coming next. Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Israel. They have a team there who specialize in looking at how data can be leaked across air gaps. Now, an air gap is where you actually want to create two deliberately separate networks for security purposes. A good example might be, say, malware research. You want to have a network where you can let viruses loose and let them roam around and try stuff, but you don't want them to be able to escape onto your corporate network. And the best way to do that is not to try and set all kinds of special network filtering rules, but just say, you know what, we're actually going to have two separate networks, thus the word air gap. There's no physical interconnection between them at all. No wire connecting network A to network B. Now, clearly in a wireless era, uh, <laughs> things like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth were an absolute disaster for <laughs> segregated networks of this yep. sort. There are ways that you can regulate that. For example, let's say you say, well, we are going to let people take mobile phones into the secure. It's not a super secure area. So we'll let them take in mobile phones because they might need to get a phone call from home or whatever. But we're going to insist that their phones and we're going to verify that their phones are in a specific lockdown condition. 
And you can do that with things like mobile device management. So there are ways that you can actually have air gap networks, separate networks, but still be a little bit flexible about the devices that you let people bring in. The problem is that there are all sorts of ways that an untrustworthy insider can seem to work perfectly within the rules, seem to be 100% compliant, yet have gone rogue and exfiltrate data in sneaky ways. And these, these researchers at Ben Gurion University of the Negev, they've done, they're great at PR as well. They've done things in the past like Lantenna, which is where they use a LAN cable as a sort of radio transmitter that leaks just enough electromagnetic radiation from the wire inside the network cabling that it can be picked up outside. And they had the, the fan smitter. That was where, by varying the CPU load deliberately on a computer, you can make the fan speed up and slow down. And you can imagine, with a microphone even some distance away, you can kind of guess what speed a fan is doing on a computer on the other side of the air gap even if you only get a tiny bit of data out, even if it's just one bit per second, if all you want to do is surreptitiously leak, say, an encryption key, then you might be in luck. And this time they did it by generating sounds on the secure side of the air gap in a computer speaker. But computer speakers in most computers these days, believe it or not, they can actually generate frequencies high enough that the human ear can't hear it. So you don't have a giveaway that there's suddenly this suspicious squawking noise that sounds like a modem <laughs> going off. So that's ultrasonic. But then you say, well, all the devices with microphones that are on the other side of the air gap, they're all locked down. Nobody's got a microphone on. It's not allowed. And if anyone were found with a mobile phone with the microphone enabled, they'd instantly be sacked or arrested or prosecuted or whatever. Well, it turns out that the gyroscope chip in most mobile phones, because it works by detecting vibrations, can actually act as a really crude microphone, just enough to be able to detect the difference between, say, two different frequencies or between two different amplitudes at the same frequency. And they were able to exfiltrate data using the gyroscope chip in a mobile phone as a microphone. And they did indeed get as low as one bit per second, but if all you want to do is extract, say, an AES key or, or an RSA private key, which might be a few hundred or a few thousand bits, well, you could do it in minutes or hours using this trick. So air gaps are not always what they seem, Doug. It's a fascinating read, and uh, although it doesn't really put your home network at great risk, it's a fun thing to know about, and if you have anything to do with running secure networks that are meant to be separate and you want to try and protect yourself against potentially rogue insiders then this is the sort of thing that you need to be looking at and taking into account okay very good uh moving right along we are fans around here of saying validate thine inputs and sanitize thine inputs and uh the newest version of chrome has taken away the joy we will get from being able to say sanitize thine inputs because it's just going to do it automatically well, that's great. It means we can say sanitized on inputs has become easier. Yes, Chrome 105 is the latest version, just came out. The reason we wrote it up on Naked Security is it patches no fewer than 24 security holes, one critical. I think eight or nine of them are considered high, and more than half of them are down to our good friend's memory mismanagement flaws. Therefore, it's important, even though none of them are zero days this time. 
So there's nothing that we know that the crooks have got onto yet. With 24 security holes fixed, including one critical one, the update's important on that account alone. But what's interesting is this is also the version, as you say, in which Google has turned on a feature called Sanitizer. It's been knocking around in browsers in the background experimentally for about a year. In Firefox, it's off by default. You can turn it on, but you still have to go into special settings and enable it. The Google crew have decided we're going to put it on by default in our browser. So I don't doubt that Firefox will follow suit. And the idea of this sanitizer, it doesn't fix any problems automatically on its own. It's just a new programming function you have that as a web programmer, when you generate HTML and shove it into a web page, instead of just setting some variable in JavaScript that makes the stuff appear on the web page, there's now a special function called setHTML, which will take that HTML and it will subject it to a whole load of sanitize thine input checks by default. Notably, that if there's anything in there, like script tags, even if what you're creating is like mashing together a whole load of variables, so something that didn't show up in static analysis, for example, uh, by the time it comes to setting that in the browser, if there's anything that is considered risky content, it will simply be removed and the page will be created without that. So rather than trying to say, oh, well, I see you put some angle brackets and then script, well, I don't, you don't really want to do that. I'll change the angle bracket to ampersand LT semicolon. So instead of being an angle bracket, it displays as an angle bracket. So it's a display character, not a control character. What the sanitizer does, it says that shouldn't be there. And it actually strips it out automatically. And by default, the idea is if you use this function, you should be a lot safer than if you don't. And it means you don't have to knit your own sanitization checking every time you're trying to process stuff. You can rely on something that's built into the browser and knows what sort of things the browser thinks are important to remove automatically. So that's the, the things to look out for are a, a new JavaScript function called setHTML and a JavaScript object called sanitizer. And we've got links to Google's pages and to MDN web docs in the article on naked security. So if you're a web programmer, be sure to check this out. It's interesting and important. Okay, very good. Also interesting and important. LastPass has been breached. And according to some reports on the web, I'm uh, paraphrasing the band REM here. It's the end of the world as we know it. <laughs> when this news first broke, Doug, I wasn't really inclined to write this up on naked security at all. I, I figured this is really embarrassing negative PR for LastPass. But as far as they can tell, it was their source code and their proprietary stuff, their intellectual property that got stolen. It wasn't customer data, and it certainly wasn't passwords, which aren't stored in the cloud in plain text anyway. So as bad as it was and as embarrassing as it was for LastPass, my take on it was, well, it's not an incident that directly puts their customers' online accounts or passwords at risk. So it's like a battle they have to fight themselves, <laughs> really. That's important to uh, th to point out because a lot of people, I think, who don't understand how password managers work, and I wasn't totally clear on this either. As you write in the article, your your local machine is doing the heavy lifting and all the decoding is done on your local machine. So LastPass doesn't actually have 
access to any of the things you're trying to protect anyway. Exactly. And so the reason why I did ultimately write this up on Naked Security is I received a lot of messages in comments and emails and on social media from people who either weren't sure or people saying, you know what, there's an awful lot of guff floating around on social media about what this particular breach means. LastPass and other password managers have had security problems before, including bugs in the code that could have leaked passwords. And those got some publicity, but somehow they didn't quite attract the attention of this. It's, oh, golly, the crooks have got their source code. So there was a lot of misinformation, I think, a lot of or FUD flying around on social media, as you say, of people going, well, what do you expect when you entrust all your plain text passwords to some third party? It's almost as though the messages on social media were people saying, well, you know, that's the problem with password managers. They're not a necessary evil at all. They're an unnecessary evil. Get rid of them. So that's why we wrote this up on Naked Security as a sort of question and answer session dealing with the key questions people were asking. Obviously, one of the questions that I asked because couldn't really avoid it is, should I give up on LastPass and switch to a competitor? And my answer to that is, that's a decision you have to make for yourself. But if you're going to make the decision, make sure you make it for the right reasons, not for the wrong reasons. And more importantly, should I give up on password managers altogether because this is just proof that they can never possibly be secure? because of breaches. And as you say, that represents a misunderstanding about how any decent password manager works, where the master password that unlocks all your sub-passwords is never shared with anybody. You only ever put it in on your own computer and it decrypts the sub-passwords, which you then have to share with the site that you're logging into, basically. The password manager company doesn't know your master password doesn't store your master password, so it doesn't have your master password to lose. And that's important because it means not only can the master password not be stolen from the password manager site, it also means that even if law enforcement show up there and say, right, show us all the person's passwords, they can't do that either. All they're doing is acting as a storage location for, as you say, this encrypted blob and the idea is it only ever should be decrypted on your device after you've put in your master, master password and optionally after you've done can, some kind of 2FA thing. So as you say, all the live decryption heavy lifting is done by you with your password entirely in the confines of your own device. Very helpful. So we, we do still, the big question, do we still recommend using password managers? And I think we can safely say yes. Yes. There is a last question, which is, I guess, this is a more reasonable one. Does suddenly having all the source code, which they didn't have before, put the crooks at such a significant advantage that it's game over for LastPass? Well, that is a great segue to our reader question. And if I may spike it over the net here in volleyball style. Oh, yeah. On the LastPass article, Naked Security Reader Hua comments in part, what if the attackers somehow managed to modify the source code? Wouldn't it become very risky to use LastPass? It's like a SaaS service, meaning we can't just not update our software to prevent the, quote, corrupted source code from working against us. Well, I don't think it's just a 
software as a service because there there is a component that you put on your laptop or your mobile phone. And my understanding, I'm not a LastPass user myself, but my understanding is you can work entirely offline if you wish. The issue of, well, what if the crooks modified the source code? I think we have to take LastPass at its word at the moment. They've said that the source code was accessed, downloaded by the crooks. Uh, I think if the source code had been modified and their systems had been hacked, I'd like to think they would have said so. But even if the source code had been modified, which is essentially a supply chain attack, well, you would hope that now LastPass knows that there's been a breach, that their logs would show what changes had been made and any decent source code control system would, you would imagine, allow them to back out those changes. You can be a little bit concerned. It's not a good look when a company that's supposed to be all about keeping people from logging in inappropriately sure. one of your developers basically gets their password or their access token hacked. <laughs> yeah. And it's not a good look when someone jumps in and grabs all your intellectual property. But my gut feeling is that's more a problem for LastPass's own shareholders thinking, oh, golly, we were keeping that secret because it was proprietary information. We didn't want competitors to know. We wanted to get a hold of the patents on it or whatever. So there might be some business value in it. But in terms of does knowing the source code put customers at risk? Well, I think it was another commenter on Naked Security said, we better hope that the Linux source code doesn't get leaked anytime soon then. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think pretty much uh, sums up that whole issue. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you for sending in that comment, Hua. And if you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Amath reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.